Well, today, in light of fashion of Jim, we are continuing our Be Attitude series. Okay. But as we go into this Be Attitude series, I have a couple of questions to ask you. Like I asked the children. What are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? What will make you satisfied? That is our questions for today. And as we approach this next beatitude, we are kind of going to jump over one today, but we're going to watch on how we came to this point. Our beatitude for today is verse 4. But I ask you to rise today and take out your bulletin. You'll have the uh, beatitudes with you, so please rise as we read all of them together. We'll be reading from the King James Version of the Beatitudes. This is why we gave you the insert. Starting in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we'll see here that we've gone over a couple of different verses so far. Cool. And we have kind of understood that these Beatitudes are something like a ladder. It's got a systematic approach to this, why Jesus starts with this end and continues on to this end. We have gone over verses 3 and 4 for the past couple of weeks. We're going to skip over verse 5 and go to verse 6. But in order to do that, let's understand the ladder in which we're approaching we first recognize that we are poor in spirit. Now, when we say poor in spirit, we're, we're not talking about just general poverty. We're talking about your spirit is bankrupt. You have nothing to your name outside of Christ spiritually. You need him to fill you because you are poor. And this comes at the end that you will see that yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is where we come to Christ. We come to him poor with nothing. And he gives us everything. Next, we move to those that are mourn. Once we understand our poor, our poverty in this situation, we begin to mourn and grieve inwardly of who we were. There's a godly sorrow in our lives for sin, for what we were outside of God, where we were seeking ourselves and not him the whole time. The progression leads up to our next point, which Jim will go over next week, which is the idea of being meek or being gentle. Simply put, I would say that meekness is the ability to have the sword, to know how to use it, but you keep it sheathed. You don't use it. You're gentle. You understand that you are lowly under Christ's headship. For those of you with children, for those of you who've known children, 
when they approach little dogs or cats or other little kids or even just other kids, what do you have to tell them? Be gentle because you know what they're capable of. And in the same way, we are. So Jesus tells us to be meek, to be gentle. Why? Because we shall inherit the earth. What a longing for that we have in the end. And that brings us to our verse of the day. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, we have to answer a couple of questions about this. What is righteousness, and where does it come from? We're going to spend a good amount of time to understand what righteousness is and what it's not. We're going to define it. But we live in the world, and the world has its own understanding of what righteousness is. We get to see what the Word says about righteousness and what the world says about righteousness. Here I have a definition from our friends at Google of righteous and righteousness. Google's definition of righteous, it's an adjective, it's a descriptive word. It's a person or conduct morally right, justifiable, or virtuous. Okay. Righteousness from the world is a noun, it's a thing, it's a quality of being morally right and justifiable, characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. Sounds pretty correct, right? Sounds pretty close. Now let's compare this to a KJV dictionary definition of righteous and righteousness. Just accorded to the divine law, applied to persons, it denotes one who is holy in heart, observant of the divine commands and practice as a righteous man. Applied to things, it denotes consonant to the divine will or to justice as a righteous act. It is chiefly used in theology and applied to God in his testimonies and to his saints. The righteous in scripture denote the servants of God, the saints. Starting to see a little bit of a difference. Righteousness, purity of heart and rectitude of life, conformity of heart and life to the divine law. Righteousness, as used in scripture and theology, which is chiefly used, is nearly equivalent to holiness. Comprehending holy principles and affections of heart and conformity of life to the divine law. It includes all that we call justice, honesty, and virtue with holy affections. In short, it is true religion. Do we see a difference between the world's definition and the Bible's definition? What is their focus on? The world's focus is on you. How moral are you? How right are you? How justifiable are you? How virtuous are you? The Bible says the comparison is to God's law and to God. That is the difference between the world's definition of righteous and righteousness and our definition of righteous and righteousness based off of the Bible. By the way, that end statement, in, in short, it is true religion. James says, pure and undefiled religion in sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's an action of loving one another and removing yourself from the world, not being a part of them. The Bible's standard of righteousness is God in everything, in your attitude, in your actions, in your words, and in your thoughts. That's the standard. God's law also points us to God's character, but it's also the plumb line in which we are judged as our human righteousness goes. 
as I say those words, the weight of God's judgment comes down. Because I don't know about you, I don't consider myself very righteous when it comes to the standard of God's law and who he is. A righteous person is just, right, holds, and trusts in the Lord. We can also see what righteousness is by what it's not. In Scripture, it's always contrasted with wickedness, perversion, sexual immorality, liars, thieves, murderers, adulterers. That is the opposite. Unloving, uncaring, and untruthful. Unrighteousness does not revere God. It doesn't respect man, and it is self-centered. The idea of being self-righteous of your own accord. We talked a lot in Sunday school this morning about of our own pride and our own righteousness. Simply put, it is to be right with God, not with man. So, let's go over some examples that we have in Scripture. When you think of uh, Abraham, do you think of his, all of his righteousness? I mean, the guy literally gave his wife away twice to different men in order to prevent himself from having hardship. It's not usually what we think about when we think of righteousness or being a righteous man. Or David, the godliest man in the Bible, took Bathsheba for himself, had her husband murdered. We don't normally think of those things as righteous. Or we think of Jonah as he calling to go to Nineveh. We don't think of those people as righteous. Or let's look at this a little deeper. You and I. Do we think of ourselves as righteous? Not really. But, however, in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed in God, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Hebrews 11, 32-33, it gives the list of these men, David, Samson, Gideon, all the prophets, not because of the power that they held, not because of their esteem. David was a king. It was because of their faith that led them to acts of righteousness. We're seeing a theme here that righteousness is from God and not in of ourselves. So I have some good news and some bad news for you when it comes to righteousness. Bad news is you can't do it. Not on your own. The idea is, and the standard is perfection, and we are far from it. I know I am. I get reminded pretty often. But there is good news, and we call that good news the gospel of Jesus Christ. That true righteousness is capable when we believe in him and his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We are imputed with righteousness. So how do we obtain this? Further, how is that possible for us to obtain this righteousness? We see in 2 Corinthians this idea of being cleansed and being imputed with the righteousness of Christ. You may have heard the idea of imputation before. Let's go over it a little as we go through this text. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what we call the W imputation. Christ on the cross takes our sin onto himself. And then he bestows the righteousness that he acquired throughout his life to us. 
It's imputed. It's not because of you. It's because of him that you have righteousness. It's because of him that you get to stand before God. It's because of him that we get to pray together and approach God at his throne because of what he has done. We are accepted. On the cross, Jesus was treated as a sinner when he was perfectly holy and blameless. And when we stand before God, we get to stand there as righteous because of his endurance of fulfilling the entire law. Think about that. There's 613 laws, and Jesus throughout his entire life kept every single one of them in deed, action, thought, and word. He never messed up. How many times do you mess up in a day? I mess up a ton. As you become a parent, you realize that. You mess up way more than you think you do. And that's why we have God's grace. So, we get this idea of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Now, how does he do this? Jesus was sent for this exact purpose. He not only died for our sins, but he lived for our righteousness. Remember, righteousness is obeying God in everything. If Jesus, we get this idea all the time of, well, why did Jesus have to live? He could have just came down on Friday, went to the cross, died, resurrected on Sunday, and we were good. It's not true. We have been cleansed from our sin because of that weekend. But we would not be able to stand before God as righteous if it wasn't for his life. Christ could give us full righteousness because he lived the life of righteousness. His life is what gets us the ability to stand before God. That's why he needed to be born. That's why he needed to grow up. That's why he had to go through all of this, the temptation in the woods, everything. He had to live for us. When we look at Jesus' baptism in Matthew, Jesus approaches John, and John says, no, 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 no. I, I need to be baptized by you. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of your sandal. And Jesus' response is, it, it must happen. Permit it at this time, for it's to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when it comes to this text, I have a lot of kids that ask this and a lot of people, well, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He was perfect. He was no sin. He needed to be baptized for us. Our Savior does not ask anything of us that he's not willing to do himself. In order for us to receive that gift, he had to be baptized so we could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He is showing the example to us of righteousness. He didn't need it. We did. We focus on the death and the resurrection a lot, as we should. But sometimes we forget the importance of the fact that Christ was a living human being as God and had to go through all of it so we could stand before God. He lived for us, so we should live for him. So, we understand a little bit about righteousness now. So where does this idea of being hungry and thirsty come from? Why is hunger and thirst the illustration here? Well, I don't know about you, when I get a little hungry, I get a little hangry. Or when I haven't drank in a little while, I'm not the happiest person, right? But I don't think it's talking about that little bit of hunger, that little bit of thirst. I think it's deeper than that. Remember, we're coming from spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing. Not a couple of coins, not um, we can't make one bill or two. We have nothing. And then it leads us to mourning over sin. 
And then that leads us to being gentle and meek with other people. You know what we realize throughout that process? We're starving. We have not had any real food or drink our entire lives until Jesus steps in. He is our food and our drink. We're not talking about missing a meal. We're talking about weeks without food. We're talking internment camp style starvation. You have had no food or drink until Jesus steps in. Apart from God, we've been serving our flesh until he calls us out. There has been a famine and a drought in our personal land. And this is where we get the idea of being hungry or thirsty. This word righteousness, by the way, to illustrate for hunger, is, I'm totally going to butcher this, dekaiosone uh, is the Greek word for righteousness that we see in the New Testament. It's used 92 times, and it specifically relates to conduct in relation to other people. Relation in business, relation in legal matters, and obviously the biggest one, relationship to God. Now, what does this have to do with anything that I just talked about with hunger and thirst? It feels like we just took a turn. It makes sense when we look for the things that we long for in our lives like we're hungering for. In business, I can tell you as a business owner, and I can probably preach to Greg on this very issue, we want people to treat us rightly. If you say you're going to buy something or you're going to pay me for something, I hope that you do that. As a consumer, if you say you're going, to pur- you're going to bring this to me on this date or you're going to provide this service, I hope that you do that. My hunger is for the right thing to happen. In legal matters, do we not want murderers, rapists, thieves to receive their due punishment for what they've done? We want the right thing to happen. In relationship to others, we see other people that we love in the church, outside of the church, and we long for them to change, to become more humble, to become more modest to be more loving, to be more caring, to spread peace and not strife. We long for those things because they are right. And, more, and I think the most one here is we seek in ourselves. We desire for ourselves to become righteous, to be, have righteousness in our lives. We want to see the wicked parts of us removed and replaced with the parts of Jesus. That's what we long for. That's what we hunger and thirst for. It's about yearning for all things to be made right in the world, in others, and especially in ourselves. And when you're hungry and thirsty, you're looking for fulfillment. That's the end goal. You want to eat the steak and the veggies and feel full, relax, have a drink, and, and be at peace. So how do we get filled? What does it mean to be full like that guy is? Well, In nutrition, there are three things that make you feel full. They are fat, fiber, and protein. Those are the three things that make you feel full, okay? Not carbohydrates, not sugar. Those are things that don't make you feel that. This is why when you eat steak and vegetables, you can only eat so much. You have a capacity limit and you feel stuffed. Versus when you eat chips or candy, you can eat quite a bit of it and you're most likely gonna get sick before you get full those things aren't truly satisfying. They don't truly fulfill you. What does that have to do with anything? In order to have fulfillment, you need the right stuff. By the way, that was your health lesson for today. You're welcome. In the end of everything, Jesus will make everything right, correct? We have the hope that's within us in Revelation that we will win, that Jesus will wipe away every tear, sin will be removed, and it will be all made right. But we are here now, So how do we get fulfilled now? With the Holy Spirit. 
That's what Jesus gives to us as a fulfillment. He says, wait as I ascend the comforter, not the one on your mattress. The Holy Spirit's going to come down and be with you. He's going to fulfill you. And he's going to make it possible for you to have righteousness on earth as you will in heaven. It is through him that we can have that belief in the God which is reckoned to us as righteousness. We forget the Holy Spirit sometimes when we focus on the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is the one who indwells within us, pointing us back to Christ, who points us back to the Father. We have to remember that it is because of his work that we can do anything. So in order to give you a better understanding of what this means to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness and to be truly fulfilled, Greg set me right up. We're going to walk through Psalm 63, piece by piece, to show you what David was talking about. This psalm is titled, The Thirsting Soul Satisfied in God. You couldn't line it up any better. So if you can, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. And we're going to walk down this passage. Remember, David is in the wilderness, longing to be back in Jerusalem, worshiping God. His desire is for the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. First thing David does is cry out to God. What do we do when we come to the Lord? At the beginning of poor in spirit, we cry out to God. You are my God. You are the only God. I serve no other. It is you. I shall seek you earnestly. My entire life is to seek you, to long for you, to run to you. That's what I want my life to be. And it's earnest. It's not like passive. All right, I guess I'll follow. I'm running to Jesus every chance, every moment, every, tri every trial, every praise. I run to him. Nowhere else. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Every part of my absolute being, my material and immaterial part of me, longs for God. Why? Because this land is dry and barren. There is no good thing that offers me what Christ offers me. It can't do it. Verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. As I walk into this hall of worship to be with my fellow believers, my body of, in Christ, I see God's power and glory among us. I see the transformation that people make. I see the growth in each one of us. I see the love of the Lord grow. When I see Gene, it fills me with hope and love and joy in Christ. I see his glory written all over her as she welcomes him into her life for the longest time that she has. Verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Everything I do, I will bless God with. I will thank him for. And then the second portion of the passage is, I will lift up my hands in your name. This is something we get a lot of us shy away from. It's one of the three postures in Scripture that tells us how to pray. Why do we lift our hands up? Because like a little child reaching for their father, Daddy, I just want you to hold me. That's what we're longing for. We have a posture of giving God our praise, 
receiving whatever good gift he has for us. And this posture shows complete trust only in him. That's what David is pointing to us for. Verse 5, my soul is satisfied with you as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. There's that satisfaction, and it comes from God. I'm satisfied with you as I am with rich foods when I'm hungry, drink when I'm thirsty. God is my satisfaction. He is what fulfills me. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I remember you in the night watches. As I lay my head down at night to rest, I remember the one who gives me true rest. When I lay my head down, I think of your word and I meditate on you and think of nothing but you as I go to slumber. Because I'm thankful to have the day and I pray to either wake up in my bed or wake up with you. Thanks, Izzy. Verse 7 and 8. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You are my helper. In the shadow of your wings, think of a mother bird protecting her chicklets. She surrounds them and protects them. How safe do you feel in that situation as the little baby bird when mama has you? That's what God does for us. And they get to sing praises as they're in this position. My soul clings to you. It has no other place. It is longing and clinging to you. Even in the darkest of times. Verse 9 and 10. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. We have the seeking of righteousness. Those who are seeking and hate you, hate you because of Jesus, not because of you. When they seek to kill you and persecute you, it's not because of anything else other than they persecuted and killed Jesus. So when you feel that pressure, praise God, because he did it for us, and he's the reason we get to do it. The apostles thought that it was unworthy to be crucified the way that Jesus did. That when they were persecuted and killed, they praised God to thank them, to thank him that they could suffer in the same way that he did. But verse 11, But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Each one of you, as servants of Christ, even the king, remember this is David, rejoice in Christ. We will receive glory and we will be in his glory for eternity. And everything will be made right. All liars will be stopped. All, all death, all sin, all tears will be wiped away from our eyes in that last moment when we are truly fulfilled. That's Psalm 63 of David's heart longing for God. So what? What does it matter? His attitude is towards justice, truth, love, kindness, and holiness towards God. His soul is filled with nothing but God. We too can find the blessings as we long for righteousness in the world, in each other, and in ourselves. We could be satisfied in Christ who lived righteously, died sacrificially, and raised triumphantly. He did this all for us. And we have been told that our promise is in the end. Revelation 22 tells us, leave those who are righteous to be righteous and holy to be holy. Let those who thirst come 
and receive the water of life. We are satisfied here with the Holy Spirit, but our true satisfaction will be in the end. That's our hope, and that's what we hunger and thirst for, to be with God one day forever. So as we close today, I have the same questions for you that we started with. How hungry are you? What do you thirst for, brethren? Do you long for righteousness in yourself, in other people, and in the world? What fulfills you? And I hope the answer is him. I found it to be very interesting that we have communion today as we celebrate, the, as we talk about this beatitude. We're talking about hunger and thirst and we have the bread that represents Christ's body broken for us, that we do in remembrance of him, that fulfills our spiritual hunger. And we have the blood that was represented before us as he shed for the new covenant for us that fulfills our thirst spiritually. I pray that this is a, something on your heart of the hungering and thirsting that are satisfied as we celebrate the Lord and Savior that we have.